has been on Alabama's death row in a five by eight cell for over 25 years now for something that he did not do. And the courts continue to say all of these things that happened in this injustice are okay and continue to affirm his conviction. And the state of Alabama continues to seek his execution. Welcome in, kiddos. It's another fine week of your favorite political podcast, Alabama Politics This Week, with Josh Moon and... David Person, and I have an announcement. Oh, David's leaving. I knew it was coming. My announcement is that I will not be bullied. Oh. I will not be bullied. And the Trump show is over. Oh. Now, that's a quote from... uh, from the New York Attorney General, I just thought that was so. <laughs> I thought that was so great. Just got to begin the. Just got to begin with that. That was just yeah. so great. I when I heard her say that, yeah, it's it's so great that they're 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 putting like gag orders on him and stuff. It's uh, really really awesome, and and he, you know he's going to violate it because he can't help himself because he's essentially an overgrown toddler uh, yep. out there just screaming at things and pounding his fist on tables and stuff. But um, yeah, he's this dude's going to go to jail, and I, I, I put something on Twitter this past week and I don't say that because I want people to go and read my Twitter. I just, I just thought of it and I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm just now coming up with this stuff or whatever, but um, you know, so I, but I put something on Twitter. The reason he's going to go to jail in this is he is now asking comfortable people to take risks that would upset their lives mm-hmm. and risk their freedom and those comforts and those mm-hmm. comfortable people are too much like him. And they're not going to risk those comforts. They're going to sell him down the river in a heartbeat. And it's already started uh, with people turning on him. And that's the reason why he's going to ultimately go to jail is because they're going to see what's stacked against him. They're going to know that they're uh, in, they're going to face a jury of people that are not going to hear bullshit, uh, you know, media stuff and fake news nonsense left and right. And they can't be conned because there's going to be two sides presented in this thing and they're going to be presented equally. And so they're going to be able to see exactly what he did and how he did it and how he tried to con everybody into this and steal an American election. And so they're going to put him in jail for that. And they know that they'll go down with him if they if they stand beside him. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that anymore. It's one thing to stand in the media and say, oh, Trump's been persecuted. It's another thing to stand up and risk that comfort, knowing that y'all concocted this plan to try to steal this election and keep him in power. It's a whole other thing to stand up there and do that. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, very few people are going to do that. Very few. I think there are a handful who will, but very few. Yeah, those are the dummies. Uh, and so, you know, they'll, they'll end up where they belong. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I tell you, we do have news uh, there. As we're talking right now on Thursday, uh, a federal court has determined that Alabama will have a new map, uh, a yeah. new uh, congressional voting map. Uh, they chose map number three, which I believe sets the congressional, the second congressional district, which would be the second um it's not a majority, so you can't call it a majority black voting age population. It's at 48.7, which is close, which is close. And I believe under the uh, the test runs that they had, 
uh, of, of previous elections. It, it, it fared very well in giving black voters in that new district an opportunity to elect a candidate of their choosing. Um, and I had heard that there were a lot of people that were in favor of that that one. I, I thought more people might have been in favor of one uh, on the plaintiff side anyway, the uh, the one number one proposed map. Um, didn't care for number two proposed map and then were OK with number three. And I guess maybe this is the court's way of uh, splitting the baby. Uh, I don't know. But uh um, still much, much fairer than anything that our legislature would have come up with. As we oh, seen. clearly, clearly. Uh, yeah. 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 And, and, and it, it accomplishes what I think really is the political objective, which is to, uh, position black voters in, in, uh, in that district with the ability to, uh, to coalesce with, uh, white Democrats um and uh, and others to elect uh, a democrat because that's really what we're talking about you know we're talking about electing uh, in practical terms that's what we're talking about we're talking about that because we know that most the overwhelming majority of black voters are going to vote for a democrat whether that yeah. democrat is black white purple doesn't matter the the race of the person so as as long as the democratic party espouses the views that it currently does, black people are going to vote for Democrats. Yes. Uh, you know, in this uh, in this state, that is that is certainly the case. Um, mm. I was looking here uh, to see I wanted to try to pull up uh, remedial plan three of the 17 that they run. They ran a test. And uh, Chris England was the one who, who tweeted this a few weeks back. And of the of the 17 election contests, most recent election contest uh, for that new district, if, you, if the, the district had been in place and took and had taken those voters, uh, the black preferred candidate would have won 16 of them. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a pretty good margin, uh, mm. I would say. Uh, that, matter of fact, it was more so uh, than than any of the others. Um, it was it was more than uh, remedial plan one, far more than remedial plan two, um, and so it was. Uh, you know, that's the reason why a lot of people liked it, I guess. Uh, so, uh, so I, I guess it, it does put in place. So even though the, that percentage, I, which is weird for me to understand, it's hard for me to understand how that is, given that. Uh, the black voting age population for remedial plan one would have been 50.1% in that mm. district, in that second district. And it's only 48.7 in this one. And I can only assume that maybe, and I'd have to go and look at the, the actual lines on that thing. The thing that I wonder is if maybe that takes in more of Montgomery County and that, that surrounding area there, mm -hmm. uh, because I, I believe in that county, you have a lot of white people who would vote for a Democratic candidate, uh, you know, or which would be, like you said, the black preferred candidate. Um, and so, you know, that I think that would be I guess that would be the reason why. Sounds like it. Sounds yeah. like it. You know, um, yeah. But again, I guess as you know, I'm not going to quibble about it because I think it's close enough. Um, I still believe that uh, overall, you know, the problem is still large enough that um, you know um, we're we're you know we're accomplishing something that's good, but we're not accomplishing something that's great, uh, in my opinion, because. 
Um, I believe we could have more uh, candidates uh, of, uh, you know, that are reflective of um, the choices, not just of black people, but of Alabamians, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, if district lines were configured differently, you know, we, and, and I'm and I'm with you and others who say that what we really need to do is depoliticize the process completely yeah. or at least do a better job of depoliticizing it by uh, establishing independent voting commissions, as has been yes. done in other locations, mm-hmm. uh, other states, thereby, um, you know, creating real opportunities to, you know, statewide. You know, what would happen, Josh, if statewide, you know, we had we had lines that were drawn without political considerations you know, and or at least as much as possible, and we're drawn more based on you know topography and natural boundaries and 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 uh, and population concentrations and things that made you know sense outside of politics. Yeah, maybe we'd see more Democrats elected. Maybe we'd see a lot more Democrats elected. Who knows? Well, I'll say this: I know whether we would see more Democrats elected or not. What we would definitely see is less extreme candidates. And that's where I think we're really failing here. It's, you know, it's not, you know, if you go, if you, if you and I sit down and had a conversation with a couple of just average Republican folks out here, I guarantee you that we would not uh, disagree on 95% of what we talk. You know, on, you know that we may disagree on how we get to certain things. We may disagree mm-hmm. on certain aspects of it, but we would have we, we could, if we could have a sane conversation with, with just your average you know person living around here that calls themselves a Republican. We would we would find that we have a lot of the same problems. We would find that we have a lot of the same things that we would like to see addressed. We would have a lot of the same distrust in a lot in some of the people that were out there. Uh, and, and we would have we would want solutions to these problems that affect us every day. And what we would what we would then lack is this nationalization of of politics that has influenced all, even local races where we have people running for city council who, you know, a few years ago, we talking was talk, we're talking about Obama uh, and Nancy Pelosi. And you know what I mean? And just nonsense, you know. And, and instead would address things like the shape of our roads and our school systems and, you know, district lines and how, you know, we're getting power and, and what incentives that we are able to offer to people to do certain things. Those things are, are, are the primary focus of most people day in and day out. And the fact that we have gerrymandered this to, as we have, has resulted in uh, a quickening of this nationalization of politics around here. And, and it's doing no, none of us any good, uh, right. you know, because we just get these extreme people who are out here bitching about libraries, you right. know? And well, yeah. And what you're talking about, I could live with as a lib- as an extremely liberal dem- democratic voting person. Mm-hmm. I could live with an Alabama or an America like that where, yeah. you know, we were making practical decisions um, that, you know, about things that have real daily impact and where the more the more hot button issues were relegated to probably where they ought to be. Because let's face it, most of us, I would take abortion as an example or, or let's no, let's take let's take as an example something we're going to be talking about here in just a little bit. And that's the whole 
kerfuffle about libraries and and books in libraries that kids can access. You, you and I both know that's really a non-issue mm-hmm. for most people. For the vast yeah. majority of people, that's a non-issue, uh, especially with the Internet being ubiquitous and, and so extremely accessible. So why are we talking about this, really? I mean, it's a smokescreen. It's just mm-hmm. foolishness. Yeah. It's a, the reason that we're talking about it is because, you know, it's what, what, our, what our folks are doing now. Or they know that they can play this, this shell game, this con mm-hmm. man's game of, of distracting you with something flashy in one hand while they do nothing with the other. Uh, yeah. Essentially, they, they, they don't address any of the real problems that we have. Uh, and because they don't have any idea how to address them, and and they don't have uh, the political will to address those things, because doing so might cost them some of those extreme voters that they've talked about. Because uh, you know, we there's just no way to do both of those things. You know, there's no way to there's no way, for example, there's no way to address the problem that we have with gun deaths in this state, and still appease your far right extremists that you're going to have to have because you so gerrymandered the hell out of this place. All right. Yep. You, you know, and and so that's the catch we too that you have now in this state. And it's just you're you're right. Everything falls back to the gerrymandering in this. And, you know, and it's the same way with it's the same way with the abortion issue. You know, we talk we've talked to Doug Jones about this before, about, you know, how if you have if you have 100 people in a room. 75 of those 100 people right now in Alabama, no matter where you go and gather, 75 of those people will say our current abortion law is not something that we could stand behind. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that you've so gerrymandered it, the 25 have such a huge impact on every race now because you're all you're getting Republicans out of this thing. So those 25 people, man, that you can count on to go in there and do this, uh, you're going and vote every single time you you got to have them, you know, yeah. and so they've got to pander to those people, even though they know that what they're doing is a very unpopular from the majority of the state. Yeah. And, you know, that's just how, yeah. how it is. Yeah. And, um, and what I like about the uh, even though I opted to go in another direction with my analogy, what I like about the abortion analogy is that. You know, the numbers are showing that even among white evangelical Christians, they feel like, uh, you know, we've gone too far. The pendulum has swung too far in the other direction, you know, on abortion. They're saying, um, you know, that it's the the position that some of these politicians have tried to take is too extreme. Mm -hmm. They understand that they're. That, that abortion needs to remain legal in some cases. And this, this whole play of trying to completely eradicate the ability for women to have abortions is, is not only uh, ridiculous, it's actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then you add on top of that the extreme, extreme positions of mm-hmm. people like uh, Clarence Thomas who are saying, and by the way, we need to go after birth control. What? What? Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? You want to go after birth control? Yeah. What kind yeah, of foolishness is that? That's yeah, crazy. And, and, and it's a it's a very tough sell to say, uh, yeah. you know, that your your twelve year old, we've got to we've got to shut down libraries basically to protect them from cartoon depictions of sex and books. But 
we want that 12 year old to carry a baby to term, right. um, you right. know, and we're going to force that to happen. Yeah. It just, it's, it's a ludicrous position to take. And anybody that takes Doesn't a step back and looks at it problem. can see it. You know, of course it is. Yeah. Of course it's nuts. It's, but people, you've got these impassioned people that have stayed, you know, staked their claim in this. Yeah. And when you, when you say to me, our, the, the state is divided 60, 40, but you've gerrymandered it to the point where in some of these districts that we have, and you know, when there's some lawsuits out there that are going to be successful probably in challenging our state uh, house and, and state Senate maps uh, as well uh, on the gerrymandering issue. Uh, but when you gerrymandered house districts to the point where 90 percent of the voters are Republican voters, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You, you've eliminated the opposition to to a lot of things. And then now you're just talking about dividing up Republicans to vote. And if you can count on that, you know, that, that small percentage of people you know, to show up to the polls, hey, you got to have them. You know, you got to have them and you can't you sure can't risk alienating them and, and not becoming enough of a conservative uh, to get the vote. And, you know, and it just eliminates I, I've talked to these people, you know, and I think it's a cop out. I think, you know, I've always said, listen, if you can't get if you can't go and do the damn job, then don't do it, go and do the job. Right. But, you know, I've heard them say, I, I if I do this, I can't I can't stay in office. You know, mm-hmm. I, if I if I do that, you know, that's not what my my voters want to have. And I was like, well, that's not what's in line with the the majority of the state. You know that I I do know that, but it's not the majority of my voters. You know, and I'm like, well, you've gerrymandered the hell out of your voters. You know, exactly. And, and so, exactly. uh, and, and they they agree, they agree with that though. That's not something that anybody denies. And and I'll tell you, there are a lot of people in state government today who think like we do. Even people who are benefiting from it currently. Mm. Thing like we do because they're tired of this, really this bullshit. This thing where you know they see they see stuff going on and, and they may not participate, but they stay silent, which is almost as bad. And and they see yeah. real people getting hurt, you know, transgender kids and uh, you know gay kids. And, and, you know, they see them getting hurt. And can we say you, you, you? I think you're being kind. You say it's almost as bad. I think the silence is horrible. I think the silence is as oh, it bad is. because they are complicit. They yeah. are enabling a sick, dysfunctional political system that's yeah. not that that's not benign, but actually is, as you said at the end of your column about the libraries, kids are dying. Mm-hmm. Kids are dying because of some of these decisions that people are making. And when I read that line, I thought, oh, wait a minute, Josh, that's a little strong. But then I I started going back. I went back to the top of your column and looked at all the things that you pointed out. It's like, well, no, Josh is right. Kids are dying. They are. You know, families are being put at risk. So Mm -hmm. absolutely, the silence makes them 100% culpable because they are not standing up and challenging a yeah. sick, dysfunctional, dangerous political system. Yeah, and, and I'll say this uh, to, to your point on that because yeah, you're right. I was I was overly kind because in a lot of cases, while they also while they re, they do remain silent and don't necessarily participate in pushing these things, they still vote for them a lot of times. Yeah. They still vote for these bills, uh, these bills that that, yeah. uh, that that hamper the care of transgender kids, that hamper a lot of the you know the school funding bills, a lot of the things that go forward that really hurt uh, minority kids. Uh, in, in a lot of districts, they still vote for them and they still push mm-hmm. them through because it was a Republican bill and they had to, you know, and which you don't, 
You don't have to do that. And there are people who have come through before. Yeah, maybe they didn't stay in office very long, but they've people have come through before that had uh, enough spine to stop this. Um, and it, it sure would be nice if if we took a look at this and all of those people out there, and and maybe some of the big businesses out there, the regions, banks, the uh, you know the the Blue Cross Blue Shields, the Alabama Powers, and folks, the people that that I've heard from who have said we're getting sick of this anti-business uh, shit that they're doing out here. Mm-hmm. And, and we want that. We want candidates that are, that are more in line with normal people. Maybe if everybody got behind this and used this as an excuse to push uh, a political uh, redistricting, uh, an apolitical redistricting effort and, and said, listen, we're going to stop this. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to courts. We're going to have, we're going to come up with a, a group of people, maybe even do it for a group of people out of state, you know, from university folks from out of state somewhere that have no interest in this whatsoever and put them together and, and put, and, and have this whole thing uh, done up in a way that we don't have these fights all the time, that if there's a set system in place, we know what it's going to be. And it just is computer generated and we don't even have to think about it. Um, you know, I, it sure would be nice. And and listen, if 99 percent of the positions are Republicans at that point, so be it. So yeah. be it. If it's fair, I don't care. So yeah. be it. Yeah, so, it. yeah. So, uh, you know, Democrats need to do a better job of reaching out to people and, and changing their policies so they attract voters. That That's, you know. That, that's I've said. I've argued the same thing for Republicans, and I'm gonna argue the same thing for Democrats. And that's just how I, how I think about it. But yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think really and, and right. And I have enough confidence in the current Democratic Party's position, uh, its yeah. current positions, that if we if we do the messaging right and we make the right arguments, we're gonna get the majority of people. The majority of people will say, "All right, I'm with that. I'm yeah. with that." Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. All right, let's. Uh, let, I tell you what, let's slide out of here. Uh, and uh, if you'd like, if you're mad about this, wait till you hear our next guest, <laughs> because uh, it's Beth Shepard, and she's going to talk about uh, the Tafaris Johnson case, and it's it'll infuriate you even more. Uh, let me tell you, uh, she's got a great podcast out. We'll talk about that when we come back. Alabama politics this week. Back in a minute. Hey, uh, if y'all would do us a favor and uh, go, to, if you're on Apple Podcasts, go and rate and review our little podcast here. Uh, that would be very, very helpful for us. Uh, you know, people might pay us to do this. Uh, you never know. Yeah, but yeah, but let's not stop at Apple. Also, uh, you can do the same thing on Google Play, Amazon, yeah. and some of the more Android-friendly, uh, you know, platforms uh, as well. I forget that Dave is an Android guy. I am. <laughs> Me, I'm a conformist. And so, you know, go to Apple. But seriously, wherever you go, just do it. Just, just go and, and rate and review, and, and that would be very nice. Unless you're going to leave a bad one. Don't do, don't do that. Just don't, don't, that. Don't leave a bad one. Thank you. Alrighty, welcome back, Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person, and uh, we are happy now to have with us uh, Beth Shelburne. She's an investigative reporter, worked in TV for a number of years, but just kicked all that off to the side because she had more important things to do. And she has a brand new podcast out now. It's uh, called Ear Witness. Uh, I'm I'm assuming, uh, Beth, that you can get it uh, wherever people find podcasts normally. That's Uh, right. 
And uh, and so y'all check that out. But uh, wanted to have you on and talk about it a little bit because it involves the case of uh, Tavarish Johnson. And uh, uh, I think at this point, I would say uh, most of our folks that are listening to us probably know that story in some detail. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's a terrible, terrible tale, right? It is harrowing um, from the very start, actually the beginning of Tavarish's life to present day where we are right now, where he has been on Alabama's death row in a five by eight cell for over 25 years now um, for something that he did not do. And the courts continue to say all of these things that happened in this injustice are okay and continue to affirm his conviction in the state of Alabama continues to seek his execution, despite the fact that there's a growing chorus of people who support his evidence, including a former attorney general in Mm -hmm. Alabama, Bill Baxley, who literally has never supported evidence in any case except for the Scottsboro boys. Mm. That's it. In Bill Baxley's mind, that's the only time he's ever seen a case of innocence out of the thousands of cases he's reviewed and to Forrest Johnson. Um, So those are the two cases where he believes an innocent person has ended up in prison. So Baxley is is one calling for this case to get overturned. And the current district attorney of Jefferson County, as well as the original prosecutor who argued that DeForest needed to be on death row, are now calling for a new trial. And yet the Alabama attorney general's office is fighting his appeals and still seeking his execution. Hey, let me let me back up just a little bit and and tell folks who who may not know about uh, Johnson's case um that you know he was uh convicted I believe it was in 94 is that right or 98 the, the crime happened in 95 and Tavorist was eventually convicted in 1997 okay. there were four trials and um, in fact, he might have been convicted in 1998. It's hard to keep it straight when you're tracking four trials, but they were right. in 97 and 98. Um, uh, so that's when he got for the out. murder of an off-duty police officer who was serving as a security guard at a local Birmingham motel. Uh, that's right. And if I'm also not mistaken, they uh, the original case, they tried two people simultaneously uh, for the murder. Uh, because they weren't sure, I guess, which one did it. Um, and eventually uh, they couldn't get either one of them convicted because they didn't have enough evidence. And then evict- uh, eventually landed upon an ear witness uh, who was supposed to have heard a phone call in which DeForest uh, admitted to murdering this security guard, even though uh, she never saw him make the phone call, had never heard him before or spoken with him, uh, and then was eventually paid $5,000 as a witness in the case. Um, all of which is part of the, the attempts to to get the case overturned. But here we are. And, and what uh, I know that you've gone into great detail. So when, when I tell that story, whenever I work on a story that's, that's pretty big and then somebody comes in and gives a recap real quick, uh, uh, there's always 15 things that come to mind that, whoa, wait, you left out this, this and this. Uh, you know, so what what stuck out to you when, when I when I was going through the recap there that also needs to be said? 
Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, that was a good recap. It It's a confusing story because there's so many twists and turns. And once you start talking about multiple trials involving multiple people, a lot of folks glaze over and it's yeah. just, it's too much to process. That's part of the reason I wanted to do a narrative podcast to unpack this whole thing because um, the steps and the missteps that occurred are so painful and appalling and outrageous that the only way you could really lay it out is to do it in a long form Mm -hmm. format. I think Um, there were uh, originally four young black men charged with the capital murder of this off duty sheriff's deputy, deputy William Hardy. Um, That was based on, a tip from a 15 year old who came forward saying she had information about the crime. It was originally her mother who contacted police and said, my daughter knows about the crime and then quickly hired an attorney to pursue the reward money, um, which was at $20,000, which is a lot of money uh, connected to a case. That's 40,000 today. Um, Eventually, two of the suspects were let go because this 15-year-old witness changed her story over and over and over again over time. And the remaining two suspects were Taforis Johnson and his co-defendant, a man who was a good friend of his named Ardragus Ford. Um, Taforest and Ardragus were each tried twice for the crime. So the state prosecuted them individually. But the thing that I think is most astonishing to people when they hear this story unwound is that the state pursued a different theory about how the crime occurred and who pulled the trigger and fired the fatal shots at each one of those trials and at the grand jury hearing. So the state presented five different mutually exclusive theories about how this crime occurred. And of course, not all five can be true at the same time, but the state is allowed to do this. And so that's just one part of this case that isn't reflective of a broken system. It's reflective of the system Mm -hmm. and the system working the way it was designed to work, which to me is really what makes this case terrifying is you think you hear things like that and you think, well, that's got to be illegal. They can't present five different theories of a crime and try two different people arguing two different things in front of two different juries. Like this is a Broadway play, but Oh Mm. yes, they can. And they do. Well, that tells me that they just, they didn't know and they still don't know who did what. And, and, and that's a really frightening thing to know that the state can be unsure about who actually is guilty. Uh, and yet they were able to, they were able to garner a conviction and put somebody on death row. So let me, let me ask you this. Um, I'm just going to go right to the heart of this since we're in Alabama and and we know the history of this state. Would we be having this conversation if Toforis was not a black man? Um, that's a really good question, David. And, um, obviously we can't know for sure, 
But I think that um, the fact that he is a black man and that this happened when it did in Birmingham, Alabama, is a huge contributing factor to why he's currently on death row. Um, You know, one way that uh, this came up was I interviewed three jurors for this podcast who all regret voting for guilt and all say that if they know, if they knew then what they know now, they would not have voted for guilt. And that's that the key witness that Josh mentioned, the ear witness, was a paid witness and the jury didn't know that. And so um, when I interviewed these jurors, all three were white. His jury wasn't entirely white. Um, I think it was uh, nine, three, nine white folks and three black folks on the jury. I don't know that for sure, but it was something like that. But all three of them, um, when I asked them, why did you vote to convict? Like, what was it about the evidence that they presented that made you believe beyond a reasonable doubt that this man committed the murder? I mean, there's no physical evidence connecting him to the crime. There's no forensic evidence that was ever presented anywhere. He has a solid alibi and the alibi witnesses took the stand and testified under oath that they were with him at a nightclub. You know, these three jurors, I was appreciative. And I think that to Forrest Johnson is appreciative and his legal team that they have been willing to come forward and say, hey, we made a mistake. This is wrong. Um, we should have known about this. You know, they, they don't have to say anything. And they've all done that. And that takes courage. But when I interviewed them beyond believing this ear witness, they couldn't really say what it was that made them believe beyond a reasonable doubt. And in my mind, I think there's some presumption of guilt there that impacts, I think, black men, young black men, more than any other demographic that goes through our criminal justice system is when people see them in the defense chair, they think, well, they had to do something. Why else would they be there? And it, it, it seems like that was an undercurrent in this case that these are young black guys who aren't doing anything constructive with their lives. They don't matter and they're expendable. And that was the view of law enforcement. It was the view of the jury, sadly. And unfortunately to Forrest Johnson was the one whose family couldn't afford paid attorneys. So he had court appointed attorneys who made mistake after mistake after mistake in uh, defending him. And he's on death row because of that. My God, as a black man, that just, it, it chills my spirit, but it also enrages me. It really makes me very, very angry. I've got uh, one final question for you, Beth, um, before I toss it back to Josh. Can you please walk us through how it is possible for a witness to be paid? That sounds like something you talk about illegalities. That sounds like an illegality to me. How is that possible that a witness is paid and that that, that, that witness's testimony is upheld in court? 
That's just astounding to me. Yeah, you're not alone, David. Many people that we've talked to um, say, isn't that bribery? How is that not, you know, akin to um, pay for play and, and, you know, police just getting somebody to say what they want for money? Um, rewards are legal and law enforcement will say they're necessary to penetrate the culture of silence in communities that are impacted by crime, that they can be a helpful tool. The problem is um, the rules surrounding the transparency of rewards are murky. Um, In this case, the witness was paid after Teforest was conviction, his was convicted and after he lost his direct appeal. You know, the very first appeal that a death row, someone on death row goes through. Um, the prosecutor at the time, a man named David Barber, his office did not notify anyone that they were paying the witness except for the governor's office who cut the check. Um, But the judge signed an order authorizing this payment off the record. It wasn't entered into the court file. And to me, that's just an obvious case of prosecutorial misconduct. A reward payment to a witness, even if it happens after conviction, is mitigating evidence. It's something that could be helpful to the defense because you know, this witness had another motive other than just coming forward with a tip. They were getting paid and the jury didn't know that. Um, But the state has put forth several arguments over the years on why this is okay. Um, and, And they've changed over time, even since I've been covering the case that state has completely changed its story about what triggered this reward payment because what triggered it is key to whether or not this did amount to prosecutorial misconduct which is the issue that DeForest Johnson has been litigating in court Um, but the bottom line is rewards are okay as long as everybody knows about them and everybody didn't know about this reward and no court in Alabama has commented on that. They have said it's not misconduct, but it took the state 17 years to admit that this witness was paid. They denied it. They said she wasn't paid. They said they denied the reward payment when Teforce Johnson's attorneys had the order signed by Judge Alfred Bayhackle and had interviewed this witness and she admitted to the getting paid $5,000 and the state still denied it. Finally, under a judge's order, they produced the documents and claimed that they had been misfiled hmm. over yeah. 17 years. Yeah, they, they only found you they said. only found out right because uh, the the lady that worked in the office uh, came forward after she had quit and said, "Oh yeah, by the way, there's a secret file of reward payments to people, uh, and it's probably in that file." Yeah, we get into that in episode six of the series, but um, that that is right, Josh, and that's been in some of the court filings that I'm sure you've read. Mm-hmm. That's how Mr. Johnson's legal team finally got their hands on all of these documents attached to the reward payment is the former office manager for the Jefferson County DA's office told them, 
oh, the DA David Barber didn't put reward documents into the court file. They went in a separate confidential filing cabinet. And there's been one other case that we tracked where a man was convicted of murder, predicated on the testimony of a single witness who was paid $10,000 for her testimony. His case was eventually overturned because the witness recanted and uh oh, lo and behold, they find out she was paid for her testimony. And where did all that documentation go? Into that separate filing cabinet. So that to us signals suppression yeah. of information that could be helpful to the defendant. And what I'd like to know is how many other cases involved paid witnesses yes. that we don't know about. So one point of order real quickly. You say prosecutorial. I say prosecutorial, judicial, and gubernatorial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a chain of command in this action of paying the witness where so many different parties came into contact with this authorization of the payment, the check being cut, her coming in to sign for it, her cashing it. I mean, you've got all these different state agencies and folks in the Jefferson County DA's office involved. And yet no one told the defense about this. How did the um, governor's office though get involved in, in that in in being the source of the payment? I that's that also is bizarre to me. Um, I don't know if that is done so much anymore, but at the time the governor's office would offer rewards in high profile cases. And this, you know, was a law enforcement officer who was killed and it was a who done it. Nobody saw it happen. And so they, um, it was Fob James at the time, um, issued a $10,000 reward, which was matched by local funds at the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. Bob James. There's something else. Um, right. all right. So where, um, I saw this last, this week, uh, that the Supreme court had denied, uh, hearing, uh, Johnson's case. Uh, where does that leave him now? So um, I think that that was obviously disappointing. And the issue that Mr. Johnson was asking the Supreme Court to review was this secret reward payment that Mm -hmm. Alabama courts keep (laughs) affirming and saying is okay, And they passed on it. You know, the Supreme Court accepts very few cases for cert review. So I don't think it was a massive shock to his legal team, but he still has several appeals in state and federal court. So it's not the end of the line for him. You know, the problem is he's been on death row 25 years and and this should not take this long. But you guys know, you know, our justice system is limited. When somebody has been convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death on how you can get your case looked at and it's damn near impossible even when it's so obvious that it's a case of actual innocence they have to litigate these very narrow issues to try to overturn it we saw it in anthony ray hinton's case he sat on death row for 30 years um, with with faulty ballistics evidence keeping him on death row until finally um you know that that was overturned but um to Forrest, amazingly, remains hopeful. His family remains hopeful that the truth will prevail, that uh, somebody is going to do the right thing. Some people have done the right thing, like D.A. Danny Carr. 
who yeah. spent nine months reviewing the case and concluded this can't stand. There's too many errors in the process. And Danny Carr didn't even take a stand on whether or not DeForest is innocent. He just cited five major problems with the process and said, we got to do this over. We, the, yeah. we can't keep this conviction in place um, because of all of these things that happened that shouldn't have happened. So some people have stepped up. But the problem is we have these opposing viewpoints from state actors. Um, and, and it's stuck with those yeah. opposing viewpoints. And the attorney general handles all death penalty cases post conviction. And our attorney general has argued that DeForest Johnson has not raised any issue of major importance or um, extraordinary circumstances. I mean, he just might be innocent, you know, yeah. who cares? You know, yeah. <laughs> not, not a major, not a major point. Is there any, has there been any sense, I, we'll get you out of here with this. Has there been any sense that somebody, and I'm talking about Kay Ivey, I guess here, uh, might, might eventually step in at, at some point uh, or will they, you think that they will allow this to continue on? You know, there are conversations happening at the legal level that I'm not privy to yeah. um, that Mr. Johnson's lawyers have had with state agencies. Um, so unfortunately, I, I don't really know. Yeah. I know that um, unfortunately, public pressure in our state doesn't always work and can sometimes backfire because of the political landscape. Um, I just have to hope and pray that, you know, um, some of these folks in power, uh, will really look into their heart and give this a fair, um, look that it deserves. I don't know that that's happened. All right. Well, so the, the podcast, is it uh, is it all released or does it come out weekly or how, how is it? comes how out weekly. Um, we're dropping new episodes on Tuesdays. So we've got four episodes out now. Um, we have four more coming and, you know, we're going to stay on this until the end and, and stay with Mr. Johnson and um, his his innocence claims and really, you know, walk with him to hopefully a positive outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we hope so too. And I listened to the first couple and, uh, they are, it's a very, very well done podcast. And it, uh, if you'd like to just be angry for a little while, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, and maybe, but honestly angered and, and maybe inspired to do something and, and to help out. And, uh, because these cases, uh, his is, his is awful, but he's not the only one out there. And, and I think it, it's well worth learning what got, kind of goes on and, um, you know, and maybe maybe we can change some part of this system along the way. But hey, thank you for coming on and and sharing uh, all of this, and for the podcast yes. itself. Yes. Thank you both so much. I appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. you, Beth. You, as I've said to you before, you're doing God's work. Keep it up. Thank you. Well, you too. You too, David. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, listen, and and I'm I'm here as well. It's okay. Thank you too, <laughs> I, don't, I don't do I don't do as good as y'all. I don't do as good as y'all. I'm not doing God's work or anything, but you know, maybe like a small disciple's work. Uh, so it's You're doing you know, well too, my friend. Right. I'm doing, doing Judas's work over here. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you, Beth. That is Beth Shelburne, uh, and uh, y'all seriously check out Ear Witness uh, wherever you get your podcasts, yeah. and uh, it'll be well worth your time. We're gonna slide out. It's Alabama politics this week. We'll be. Back in a minute.
If you're hearing my voice, that means you are a fan of Alabama politics this week. And I want to tell you how grateful I am that you listen and that you're engaged with what Josh and I talk about every week. So I want to ask you to continue listening and uh, continue to support us and definitely reach out with ideas, comments, suggestions. Uh, Your support makes a difference and it means a lot. All right, welcome back, Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person. Uh, we're uh, cruising along here. We're gonna, um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, it is apwproducer at gmail.com. You can, you can holler at us that way. We, uh, we, got to, we have some big news. We were, we were thinking we were going to be able to, to start this week with our, our big news and, and kind of a change of things around here. But uh, I guess we'll start next week uh, with that. Uh, we're taking a little longer to, to get implemented than, than we anticipated. But uh, you'll, you'll notice the change uh, here coming up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. It's one we're, we're really happy about. Um, and, uh, you know, we, <laughs> this show... I don't know what we would do sometimes without the Alabama Democratic Party. <laughs> uh, because whenever you think, has been a relatively slow week, they always come through for us with a story. Uh, and then this week, uh, they are, they're going before the Rules and Bylaws Committee uh, later today. I mean, this podcast drops on Friday. And so later today, they'll be in D.C. going before the Rules and Bylaws Committee or by Zoom, I assume, as well, uh, to talk about their bylaws and the challenge to those bylaws that have been followed by a number of different uh, people within the party. Uh, there has already been some indication given that um, the bylaws are not going to compare very well. Mm-hmm. That they've implemented, uh, and uh, I think, uh, listen, I, I I spoke to to uh, Doctor Reverend Randy, uh, Reverend Doctor Randy Kelly. I'm not sure how he prefers uh, Reverend Doctor. I think is Reverend the, Doctor is the, is the etiquette. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Um, I, I spoke to him last night, uh, which was Wednesday night, uh, for for a while on the phone about this and what they expected. And I will say, I, uh, that um, that while he went on a couple of his usual tirades uh, against white people and against white media specifically, which I always enjoy when he does that. Um, <laughs> really makes me feel great. Um, but um, he was much more diplomatic, let's say, uh, about what is going to take place and what's, you know, kind of been going on uh, with this. And he said that he, nothing that has been said so far uh, about how the, the bylaws need to need to go uh, has surprised him uh, that mm-hmm. he expected that to be the case. He looked forward to hearing their reasoning because uh, he expected them to present uh, some evidence uh, during Friday's meeting uh, that, they had not disenfranchised anybody and that no one there lost representation, which again, man, that we know that that's not the case. I mean, we can, we can see that that's not the case and I I don't know why they continue on with this, but, um, you know, and I was thinking about that when I, when I read uh, our piece. So you've got, it comes down to how, and I'm not sure how he's missing this. And I'm trying to think, I don't think I'm missing anything. I don't think, mm-hmm. but 
when you when you converted these groups from caucuses to committees, yep. you reduced their autonomy. Yes. Right? Yes. You, you reduce their ability to self-determine certain things. Mm-hmm. So if that is indeed the case, then yes, logically, there is their representation, uh, their, their power is diminished. Yes. Now, they may not have decreased in terms of number of people. Mm-hmm. Numerically, you may have the same number of people on a caucus, in a caucus, as you as you now have in a committee, but but they're a less powerful group of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the whole argument, is it not? Yes. Yes, that is. And it's um, it's not even it's not, it's it's more more than that. You know, when you when you remove those caucuses, you removed uh, some of their. They also removed some ability of those people to vote in in different groups. This has been the standard practice uh, mm-hmm. for a long period of time. Meaning, um, meaning specifically that you've got some people, let's say, for example, who may be black, but who are mm-hmm. also LGBTQ. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and so those folks could vote in, uh, could vote twice, basically, because mm-hmm. they were represented in both groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was required by the bylaws that there be representation among those groups. And so, you know, the, because they, they wanted... That's important. I know some people hear that and they think, well, why should a person have more than one vote? Well, because that person has more than one interest. And you want to make sure that the groups of people, are their, their full interests are adequately uh, you know, represented in these groups. Right. Okay? Right. I mean, a, 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 a gay black person may have different interests when it comes to what affects them as a gay person and what affects them as a black person, you know, that's oh, I, just, guarantee, I guarantee you they do. I mean, yeah. listening to them talk, yes. you know, uh, as I have through the years, they, they absolutely have a different set of interests in certain, in, on certain topics in certain areas. Yeah. 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 And, 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 that, and that's right. That's their right, you know, and mm-hmm. that is something that the democratic party has always stood for. And so therefore they should stand for this as well. And the bylaws should reflect that. And I, I just, it, this fight over this has never made any sense to me. I, I, you know, other than you just wanted power and, you know, you just wanted the power and you wanted to make sure that you held on to it. And, and I understand even some of that, you know, to a degree, you know, mm-hmm. of uh, I'm not necessarily saying they're right. OK, I'm not saying that. But what mm-hmm. I am saying is I understand this. This feeling that a lot of the ADC folks have in that we fought tooth and nail, shed blood, gave some people gave their lives uh, for what we have now as standing in this party. And we are not going to relinquish it without a fight as well. And I understand that. But I don't think that you can say that and and do these things and then also on the backside maintain that you're not discriminating against some people. Um, Well, I I agree with you. Now, I am going to say, I am going to say that I think part of what feeds, though, the 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 ongoing distrust that uh, that Reverend Dr. Kelly and and others have mm-hmm. is they look at the politics, yeah, and they see what happens when um, 
you know, and I and I keep referring back to this because it was so as, just astonishing to me uh, that that they would actually say the quiet part out loud when uh, back in the two thousand I think it was two thousand eighteen election or whenever it was it was yeah it, was, it had to have been two thousand eighteen it was the lead up to the Doug it was the Doug Jones Roy Moore uh, that that uh, election I believe right. uh, when the New York Times ran this big piece on Alabama politics. Uh, and all of the white leaders, all of the white front-running candidates, all of the white Democratic candidates at that particular juncture, and you saw the story, all of them basically said, as I recall, that the hope for Alabama resided in white candidates running. Mm -hmm. So as a black person, when I read that, I thought, what the blankety blank blank? That's craziness. That's that's absolutely that is absolutely capitulating to white supremacy in all of its forms to basically yeah. say the only shot we've got is if if a white if we got white candidates. Well, let me that's, see, let me ask crazy. you this. Let me ask you this while while we're talking about this real quick. Do you think a black candidate could have won that race? You mean against Roy Moore? Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. Hmm. I really do. I really do because Roy Moore, Roy Moore, I think I think that is probably um I th not only do I think a black candidate could have won that race. I think a woman could have won that race. Oh, a woman certainly could have. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think a Filipino could have won that race. I just think here. I here's think what anybody I think. the Democrats put up, yeah, would have been would have won that race because not only was Roy Moore such a uh, a hot target to galvanize Man. people on the other side, Doug barely but won. but I think the but I think the money was going to flow in. Oh, the money was going to flow it, but see, Doug. The reason Doug barely, won, Doug only won, won. Doug only won for two reasons, man. Yeah. The first reason was that Richard Shelby gave mm -hmm. Republicans permission to not vote for for, right. for Roy Moore, right? And that that's the first reason, right? The second reason was because black women turned yes. out in mass. Yes. yes, those two factors I were going to happen, in my opinion. No matter who the candidate was, but but I'll, I'll say this: I'll say this, and and because I think we're we're not necessarily, well, I, I guess we are disagreeing a little bit because I, I think that yes, you're you're absolutely right about about Shelby and about black women voters. But what I worried about at that particular time was that base level of voters that were not black women voters and that were not the Republicans who were just staying home, and. Here's what I thought was going to happen. I thought that what would happen here is they would do to a black candidate exactly what they did to Obama, where through innuendo and, you know, basic racism, they would tear them down and discourage those people that made up that base layer of, of voters that, the, you know, that, that pushed Doug up to where he was almost even and then you know, they, they were able to get over the hump. I think that that's what was, I think that that's exactly what they would have done. We know that the Roy Moore campaign was shameless and, and the people that were supporting it were shameless as hell. And we know that they would have attacked 
uh, based on race. And we know that attacks based on race in this state are particularly effective. Um, I don't when I when I had said that I felt like a white Democrat was probably uh, the best option at that point to win that race. It was not because I felt like there were not black candidates who were equal to or better than Doug for that position. There certainly were. I just don't think that we could have gotten the people out to support them at the same level that, that they were willing to hold their nose and vote for a white former prosecutor to go and be in our in the Senate over Roy Moore. Yes, Roy was a bad candidate, but he damn near beat Doug. Well, I, I and I guess my my feeling is, um, and we're really not that far apart on this. But my my feeling is that, assuming assume, all things being equal, meaning mm-hmm. assuming that the candidate was innately a good candidate, whoever it was, right. you know, and Doug was Doug was a good candidate. There's no question about that. Um, assuming that the Democratic Party was was not dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. You know, and that and that it was doing what it was supposed to do as a party at that particular point. I think I think those two things, all things being equal, I think yeah. whoever won one would have run that race, would have won that race. Now, you know, uh, you know, again, I, I think I think, you know, if you if you fast forward to what well, could they have won a follow up, you know. You know, it may have been the same thing. You know, the, I, I term, just, the, the, the situation yeah. may have reverted back to what yeah. it did. You know, which was yeah. Doug lost, and whoever it was would have lost. But, but I I feel strongly that uh, that that all things being equal, anybody, I, any any good solid Democratic candidate could have won that race. I just think that it was so close. If they had done to a black candidate in that race what they did to Raphael Warnock in Georgia. You know, for example, and the, I mean, they went after that dude. He's a he's a preacher. It's a preacher. And the, some of the nasty, mm-hmm. uh, just vile things that were said about him and inferred about him because he's a black man. And you know, he won. Uh, but he did win. But, he, but, he won. but we don't have what Georgia has. And we know that. Right. And and I just think that I just think that it was it was so razor thin. And listen, you may be right. It may. A black candidate in there may have generated a support level among black voters and had and sparked a turnout like we had never seen before I think uh, through so. all all sorts of black voters and it, and it may have it, they may have been able to overcome that. I think uh, so. I just, right candidate. Yeah. I, my only worry was I I, I thought uh, l- look let's let's don't let's don't have <laughs> this person. You know, there. Mm-hmm. Let's get somebody that is going to be better. Uh, you, it may not be a black candidate, but it's certainly going to be somebody much better for black voters and, and black people in this state, and all minorities in this state, and all people in this state mm-hmm. than than Roy Moore or any other Republican candidate. Right, is be. and so, and we and we got that. We got that for one yeah. term, and I don't yeah. I don't dispute that at all. But yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, listen, uh, we got we got to get out here, but but before we do. We got our right wing note of the week, and uh, this week it's Kay Ivey. Uh, listen, yeah. I, you know, I mean, you can't send out two letters to the library and and, and talk about this as though it's some sort of a real problem, right. uh, while all of these other things that are literally killing kids are still on the table, and you're not addressing them. Send a, how about you send a letter to the legislature asking when they're going to expand Medicaid to help these kids out? You know, how about you do that? 
You know, how about you send some letters around to figure out what the hell's going on with this uh, infant mortality rate and, you know, why we can't get that thing solved? Or why, why don't you send some uh, some letters over to some gun manufacturers and say, hey, when are you going to start putting some safeguards on there so our kids aren't getting killed all the damn time? You know, mm-hmm. but instead we got a letter to the library because some kids might read cartoon porn somewhere. Yeah, which, or, or stumble on a or stumble on a. Uh, a Zane novel or something. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. whatever. I yeah, mean, I it's now. Yeah. In fact, if I had to choose between my, let's say, my son when he was my son was a voracious reader when he was a child. Well, he still is, but when he was a child, he was a voracious reader. If I had to choose between my son reading a Zane novel that is, you know, basically porn from start to finish almost, <laughs> and and looking at porn on his on his yeah. phone or something, I would choose the Zane novel every exactly. day of the week yeah. because yeah. at least he's reading. Yeah, and given our teen pregnancy and teen STD rates, maybe them picking up a book wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Know, learning a little bit about it because God knows they're not getting it in school anywhere. Hmm. All righty, that's going to be it for us. Well, we're going to slide out of here. Until next week, y'all be safe out there. Peace. <laughs>